I had a chat with Stuart McAlpine in mid-March. I rang to see if I could visit his farm to do a story on the collaboration he is managing with the innovative company Wide Open Agriculture in the Midwest. As with many conversations that happen around regenerative agriculture, the talk turned to how change happens. Stuart had just been to a two-day talk fest close to his farming operation and had got involved in some fairly heated debates with visiting researchers. He reckons CSIRO and other government scientists are simply not tackling the research on farms that shows what's really happening to yields and input levels amongst farmers who have been working on developing the soil biology on their properties. Or rather, the researchers only focus on yields and are not looking at the bigger picture. One scientist told him, change has to come from the politicians. Individual scientists feel hamstrung in face of the existing orthodoxy. They're merely nibbling around the edges of proper research because there is simply no context for this kind of holistic examination regenerative work needs. I found a good story to illustrate Stuart's words a few days later in Perth, told by Nicole Masters in her presentation on soil biology. Ian and Di Haggerty, the regen Walcatcham farmers I mentioned in the last podcast, were part of a study by CSIRO measuring soil carbon and yield. The Haggerty's soil carbon load was so far and above the other farm soils measured that it was dismissed as an anomaly, an outlier. In fact, when the data came up for analysis, CSIRO researchers resampled the soil to make another test, disbelieving the first results. The soils show a 40% increase in carbon, a 27% increase in nitrogen, which makes sense as nitrogen is always in lockstep with carbon, and the water holding capacity was up by 13%, advances way out of step with the markers from the data gathered from conventionally test-treated paddocks. Di and Ian, already out there on their own, have been looking for new markets for their nutrient-dense grain, knowing they can attract premium prices for produce that shows nil chemical residue and is cleaner than organic produce. Nicole explained that once the Haggerty's have got their soil biology working as it should, they run their hectares on five litres of vermi liquid, that's worm juice, and four units of urea at a cost of about $32 per hectare. You don't need to be a farm accountant to know how this stacks up against conventional agricultural input costs. The Haggerty's need others on board so they can build up volume to provide consistent output for these new markets. Stuart sent me a link to a website. This says it all, he said. The link I opened had a headline, February 2017, Agribusiness Takes All, 90 Years of Canadian Net Farm Income. This website introduced me to Darren Qualman. He is a Canadian long-term thinker and civilizational critic who worked as a researcher with the National Farmers Union for many years. Uniquely, he starts each blog with a graph. This particular graph shows two separate lines, The top one, which climbs and dips but moves steadily upwards, shows Canadian farmers' product output, and the other line that slides across the base of the graph, eventually dipping below the bottom line, shows net farm income from the market. Paraphrasing Darren's analysis, the area between these two lines represents farmers' expenses, 
the amounts they pay to input manufacturers like Monsanto, Agrium, Deere, Shell, etc., and service providers, banks, accountants, etc. This has expanded over, to cons- over time to consume almost all the farmers' revenues. Quoting Darren, from 1985 to 2007 inclusive, the dominant agribusiness input suppliers and service providers captured 100% of Canadian farm revenues. 100%. I had heard similar figures, more simply stated, to do with the analysis of Australian farm incomes. Two generations ago, the farmer could expect to get 90 cents in the dollar from the market. That has now been reduced to 10 cents in the dollar. The true beneficiaries are the dominant power base made up of scientists, agronomists, retailers, food manufacturers, etc. As Stuart noted, these figures translated to Australian agribusiness might go some way towards explaining why the suicide rate amongst farmers is twice the rate of other groups in our society. And before we leave Darren's website, here's one of his blogs from January 2018, marking the 100th year anniversary of the birth of what would become modern high-input agriculture. It was in 1918 that farmers in Canada and the US began to purchase large numbers of tractors. These tractors required petroleum fuels. To give the article some context, I quote, Humans have practised agriculture for about 100 centuries, For 99 centuries, there were almost no farm inputs, no industrial products that farmers had to buy each spring in order to grow their crops. The incredible food output tonnage of modern agriculture is largely a reflection of the megatons of fertilisers, fuels and chemicals we push into the system. Nitrogen fertiliser illustrates this process. To produce, transport and apply one tonne of synthetic nitrogen fertiliser requires an amount of energy equal to almost two tonnes of gasoline. Modern agriculture is increasingly a system for turning fossil fuel calories into food calories. Food is increasingly a petroleum product. I don't know about you, but these figures blow my mind. Darren again. Farmers are making too little because others are taking too much. I exited the website after these two blogs. Analysis like this needs to be ingested in small bursts. A few days later, by serendipitous fortune, I ended up at day one of the two-day soil biology meeting in Perth with presenter Nicole Masters. Nicole is a New Zealander, now based in Montana, and director of her business Integrity Soils that is currently helping to manage close to a million acres around the world. My presence on the day was made possible by Brent Burns. It was his company, Land Save Organics, that organised the talk fest and he generously welcomed me into the late morning session. Brent is the real deal, an open-hearted soul, passionate about what he does and delighted to give back to the community of people involved with Regen Agriculture. His business has obviously grown from strength to strength, purely by word of mouth. He's never had to advertise. About 10 years ago, Brent was running a tree lopping service and contending with the waste from his business. How, he wondered, did Forrest deal with fallen leaves and limbs? He started paying close close attention to natural forest processes, like Michelle, and got into worms, like Michelle, and eventually bought himself a microscope. 
His outfit at Vass in the southwest now produces certified organic compost and organic vermi, as in worm compost, as well as wood chip and other mulches. So, worms are clearly an entree into the world of soil biology, closely followed by time spent peering into a microscope. These seem to be the tools required by those interested in transforming their ag practices. A teaspoon of fully functioning, biologically rich soil contains 25,000 different species. That's species of bacteria, archaea, fungi, flagellites, flagellates, amoeba, ciliates, nematodes and algae. Nicole stressed that getting to know soil by smell, touch and observation is important. In her enthusiasm, she produced some funky language. The smell of rain on the soil on a summer's day is the beautiful odour of bacterial sex. Poetic, huh? There's even a name for it, geosmin. At one point, she drew two pyramids. One showed the food chain for soil, one for the sea. At the apex of the sea triangle is the white pointer shark, heading down through the fish ranks to the bottom where the most numerous and simple of the sea creatures, plankton, dwell. With soil, the top predators are nematodes, earthworms, dung beetles, red-leckered earth mites. Then come the ciliates, then protozoa, then bacteria and fungi, and sharing the bottom segment is organic matter and alga, algae, like plankton, the most numerous stuff in the system. If you apply herbicides and fungicides, you may take out weeds, but you also take out the algae, leading ultimately to the collapse of the natural system. Incidentally, any application of superphosphate on a paddock will mean an end to mushrooms. Remember those mushroom-picking picnics in May after the first rains around Perth and the fragrant inky black mushrooms on buttery toast? Now you know why your kids are eating tasteless white fungi. So nematodes came up. These root-eating creatures are a disaster for croppers. But interesting, is interestingly... 95% of these critters have beneficial effects in soil, but the 5% that are considered pests are where an enormous amount of research and chemical energy is directed. The parallels between conventional agricultural systems and allopathic medical model, that's the Western medical model, are obvious. These are disease-focused systems. Rather than choosing to support the 95% of good elements with a focus on the wellness of the whole ecosystem and the capacity of the system to self-balance, all energy is directed at destroying the so-called bad 5%, with increasing applications of chemical poisons in what Nicole calls an arms race to the bottom. Which brings me to body talk. I want to talk of what I learnt while doing the four-day foundation course in the body talk health system. The parallels between regenerative ag, ag and body talk are many. Both systems, soil on the one hand and the body on the other, rely on self-regulation and self-healing. Both incorporate knowledge that is as old as human life and both systems move out of existing models that can be seen to be increasingly narrow, life-denying and impossible to sustain. Body Talk describes itself as a consciousness health system. It was developed 20 years ago within the context of quantum physics this follows research that demonstrates, and I quote, that when the smallest particles of matter are broken down, 
What is left is vast amounts of space filled with possibilities and probabilities, suggesting that particles are just concepts. From a physicist, the material universe is a dynamic web of interrelated events. What are we to make of this? I'm not a physicist, but I can get a sense of the unfolding weirdness this idea feeds into the concept of existence. Things aren't as they seem, and everything is much more fluid and unfixed than we believe. We simply cannot rely on the evidence of our senses to uncover the true nature of reality. In this scenario, in founder Dr John Velheim's words, the body is seen as a series of dynamic systems that interact with each other and are dependent on each other for their own functioning. The concept of healing then works within a much more expanded field. From Dr John again, we create our state of health and our experience of the world, good or bad, by our state of consciousness. More on this. Consciousness is the only thing that is real. Everything else is a result of consciousness being filtered through the lens of thoughts and beliefs that direct the focus of consciousness to create its own reality. This is how consciousness and biology are linked. The great news is that we are not stuck with what we are created. Our bodies, including our genes and nervous systems, are not fixed and can change. The Cartesian or mechanistic view of the world discussed by Charles Massey in The Call of the Reed Warbler within the context of regen agriculture is also covered in the opening chapters of the Body Talk Manual within the context of human wellness. Under the Cartesian system, the body is seen as separate from the mind and each part of the body is separate entities and each of us separate from each other. Healing in this scenario is limited to finding symptoms and attempting to fix them. I love that the first question asked of the client via the Body Talk method is permission of practitioner priority? If the answer is yes, the client is simply mirroring the practitioner's doubts or confusion. The practitioner is coming in with an agenda or an attitude they need to drop before the session can continue. Body talk is thus another golden opportunity to learn that what we think we know is what is likely to stand in the way of any shifts the body might be trying to make for both the client and the practitioner. The way forward is to embrace the world of not knowing. The more assumptions, beliefs, judgments and other filters that can be dropped, the more potential to access the innate wisdom of the body. This ain't easy and it ain't airy-fairy. The protocol and procedures charts produced by Dr. Velheim, a South African now based in Florida, are very logical and structured. The idea being that following this structure to the point where it becomes second nature allows the whole body-mind complex to be intuited by the higher functions of the right brain of the practitioner. Intuition given structure then becomes a more reliable tool. It's an interesting fact that this system gets results even if the practitioner has only a basic understanding of the body-mind complex. While knowledge that the practitioner can bring to the table from other health modalities can feed beautifully into this system, it's an invitation to constantly expand and apply your learning. I've spoken before of the heady idea that big shifts in understanding the true nature of reality, even enlightenment, are available to those who choose to seek them. Right here, right now. Body talk is another part of this unfolding story. And the reason I think it's a brilliant medical model for the 21st century to stand alongside the allopathic and other health systems. Hmm, 
Can I hear synapses slamming shut as I speak? If this is my projection, I apologise. If they are slamming shut, check it out. Have a few sessions with a body talk practitioner. When quantum physics and the ramifications of this mind-boggling reality are introduced, we're talking about stuff that does not sit happily with the everyday mind. And as you might have intuited hearing this, any sessions are only going to be as good as the practitioner's ability to get out of the way or his or, of his or her own self-limiting beliefs and thoughts. Morag Blomfield, a body talk practitioner of 16 years standing, taught the fundamentals course I attended in Perth. Morag had a lot of the matron about her. Her teaching style demonstrated a winning mix of common sense and practical know-how with an impressive depth of intuition that bordered on the clairvoyant. The sessions she demonstrated with several participants were remarkable for their openness, depth, kindness and uncanny accuracy. Morag trained as a midwife and nurse, worked in a general practice in South Africa for many years and was drawn to healing modalities such as Reiki when she experienced medicine taking an unhealthy turn down a path where prescriptions for pathologies started nudging out a more holistic, socially and individually aware model. By the end of the course, I was in awe of her down-to-earth attitude as it aligned to a calm acceptance of what the logical mind would have to call magic. I called her Nurse Freaky, thereby sparking one of her many outbursts of laughter. Dr. Velheim's particular genius is to have created a system that synthesizes different balancing and healing modalities within the context of the quantum physics model of reality. Chinese meridians, the ancient chakras, neuro-linguistic programming, Ayurvedic philosophy, a hint of kinesiology, the Western understanding of physiology, all add something to the body talk system. But enough of this. Back in South Perth, lunch finished, we all trooped out for a look at the fairway and the green on the golf club, led by Nicole and the groundsman. The Royal Perth Golf Club has been working for a few years with Landsave Organics to build structure in the soil using compost and compost teas to get the best possible surfaces for the golfers. We as participants got to see samples from both the green and the fairway and saw the groundsman digging out a neat circle of turf to demonstrate the impressively dreadlocked root systems in some areas that have been developing under the new regime. One interesting fact emerged when pest and weed control at the club was mentioned. Apparently certain chemical treatments that are illegal at the golf club are still legal in food production. How ski-whiff is that? Nicole was clear about what is important in soil building. One of her statements, if you don't know the answer, it's probably carbon. Carbon is concentrated energy. Within the soil community, Nicole explained, it is the bank, the hospital, the school and the pub. Soil has structure within which the air, water and nutrients flow and carbon is the basic building block. Soil pH, it turns out, is a biological problem. Amazingly, frost is in part a biological problem as the destructive qualities of frost can be ameliorated by healthy soil. Believe it or not, there is an ice-eating bacteria. This bacteria eats ice-nucleating bacteria and protects plants. One of Nicole's slides showed paddocks divided by a fence, one side destroyed by frost, the other side still showing green life due to the positive influence of this particular bacteria. 
So pests, weeds and diseases are all influenced by the plant's capacity to pump sugars to the root system. There is also nothing random about insect action. Insects target plants that are sending out distress signals. Whether the plant gets attacked by sap suckers or chewers depends on the nature of the distress signal. Worms are another one of Nicole's go-to solutions. When talking about organic elements required to fix a problem, she stated several times, it comes out of the worm's butt, the New Zealand woman going all Montana on us. For example, if you have non-wetting soils, replace wetting agents with worm juice, 10 litres per hectare. Another suggestion is to coat seeds with biological boosters so the good stuff is exactly where it's needed when the send, seed sends its little send tendrils down into the soil and up to the surface. It seems there's really not a problem that doesn't have a biological solution and it can be done in increments by cutting down on chemical applications and replacing them with biological treatments. Every farm, every paddock has its own climate and conditions to consider what treatments would be the best experimentation is clearly the go. There was some discussion about the role of grasslands, the rangelands, as the land systems that is the biggest builder and repository of carbon. My mind keeps turning back to a vision of the Midwest rangelands, restored to biodiversity and health in face of slowly changing pastoral habits, a dream worth having on so many levels. But enough on soil biology already. My next journey will be into the wheat belt, Midwest, somewhere near Dalwallanu, followed by a foray to the southwest, an area allegedly teeming with bush food and organic ventures, and maybe a foray into my own past life. Meanwhile, support your local farmers, especially the ones bucking the system. You need the nutrients, and they need the support. <laughs>